Hello, welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers. I'm here with Steve O'Neill. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Martin. And we're joined today by a very special guest, James Johnson, who we are honestly delighted to have you, James. Uh, James ran the polling at number 10 Downing Street. He's a senior advisor um, to a global strategic uh, communications firm and is a co-founder of JL Partners. So welcome, James. Could you just briefly introduce yourself covering anything that I haven't? Yeah, uh, thank you for having me and good evening. Um, yeah, I'm James Johnson, uh, as, as Martin says, and um, I uh, was the uh, pollster um, to Theresa May. Uh, I always like to stress after the 2017 election, um, I came in and ran the, uh, the post-mortem into that election and, and, and was there uh, until July 2019. Um, and since I've set up uh, my own polling firm, um, as well as advising uh, the firm you mentioned, Keck CNC. Um, so sort of still trying to keep up to date on polling and politics uh, and everything that's going on. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, well, let's get straight into the big issue of 2020, which is COVID-19, for anyone who hasn't guessed. So James, people were incredibly supportive of the government. Is that still the case? And do the public still support lockdown? Yeah, so what we saw at the start of this uh, process, as you as you talked about, was a real sort of bounce across different countries, actually, but particularly in the UK, um, for government approval ratings, um, for prime ministers, presidents. And as I say, that for Boris Johnson, that was particularly marked here, actually, um, uh, more so than in, in many other countries. Um, and we saw for about the first two months of the pandemic, um, very high approval ratings for the government, um, and actually high across supporters of political parties so even you know Labour voters um, would be more supportive than they usually would be um, uh, and we also saw the same apply across age groups um, uh, class and uh, and regions as well now uh, that that is partly that has partly been fueled by the support for the government policy at the time which was uh, lockdown um, and uh, that has been supported very strongly throughout um, and people have been uh, incredibly supportive of that, actually. You know, the YouGov poll um, uh, had support for the first lockdown, you know, around 90%, which certainly is higher than support for any policy I ever polled at Downing Street um, or since. Now, now, though, one of those things has changed, and that is the support for the government. So actually, support for lockdown um, has stayed about where it is. And if anything, actually... Um, there is more support for lockdown continuing than for it being lifted. Um, the British public are still very nervous. Um, in a poll uh, I did uh, last Friday, so um, uh, not too old, even though it feels like a lot has happened since then, um, uh, 53% of voters said that they felt the lockdown was being eased too fast. So if anything, um, you know, there's that nervousness about it being lifted and the support that's still there. What has changed, though, is that support for the government. And that happened really... After, the, after Boris Johnson's um, statement on the 10th of May, um, when he uh, announced the easing of the lockdown, um, the stay alert slogan came in, um, and you know, what was largely seen as a statement that perhaps wasn't as clear as it could have been. Now, since that point, we have seen support for the government going down. We've seen it become much more factional, um, with Labour voters um, becoming less supportive, Conservative voters becoming more so. And then just the final thing on that, is that that has now been quickened even more by the Dominic Cummings saga over the last uh, few days, where you know we're seeing in the polls, we're seeing in, in across the picture those Labour voters getting even more 
um, uh, uh, critical of the government um, and actually some conservative voters uh, becoming critical as well. So it feels like, whereas some countries uh, like uh, Australia, um, uh, New Zealand sort of see their bounce in, 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 in political leadership continue, it seems like in the UK, uh, the time for unity uh, and um, and sort of cross-party agreement on, on the response to the pandemic seems to be very firmly over. Uh, thanks very much, James. So, Steve, why do you think this support has the support for the government has declined? Is it just a, a natural correction that people shouldn't read too much into? Um, I tend to say yes. My feeling is that it probably is a bit of a revision to the norm. Um, part of that norm, of course, is that during this whole period, we had a, a new Labour leader who's now got a profile. So um, it's probably a combination, I would say, of uh, that new leader, but also the kind of immediate panic around the pandemic um, society. And perhaps with that, uh, the kind of rallying around the flag feeling going down as well. Um, one thing that's easy, for, easy to forget, I think, is that... Uh, public opinion seems to be incredibly volatile from what I can see over the last few years. And when it's so also strongly in support of the government, um, as I say, it's easy to forget that. Uh, I was reminded of this by uh, a tweet I saw the other day, which is it's almost exactly a year since the top two parties in the polls were the Brexit party and the Lib Dems. Um, I know that was very particular circumstances around the European election, but it made me realise that we've gone through this roller coaster of um, recently we had a big Conservative win at the election uh, before that, or not that long before that, um, people thought Jeremy Corbyn uh, looked like he might be the favourite in any election. Well, that that obviously turned on its head. And then, of course, the things I mentioned about smaller parties being insurgent. So um, it, it probably is still true that support for uh, different parties is quite shallow and can change a fair bit. Thanks. So I think it's worth noting as well where some of the support has gone to. So Matt Singh has highlighted a comment about conservative support shifting to don't knows, which will be very reassuring um, to the conservatives that they're not hemorrhaging support to Labour. Although Starmer's position relative to Johnson is um, improving markedly and it does seem to be a factor that Labour's operation is now much more sort of professional. They have someone heading the party who is seen as a potential prime minister in waiting. And that seems to have um, been a factor, although obviously it's very early days and there is the question about whether this is a just a sort of a natural correction. But so James, can you give us some broader insight into how COVID looks to be impacting the country. Is this a more divided country or is it a more united country, do you think? Yeah, well, just before I come on to that, I'll just, just, just pick up on, on what you were saying there about, about Labour. I think, you know, what's very clear is that a lot of this is, is exactly as you say, and as Matt Singh commented there, you know, Labour increasing perhaps more than the Conservatives are declining. So we asked some questions in our in our poll on um, on, on the Dominic Cummings situation earlier this week, uh, out, which was out on, on, on Wednesday. And um, you see there that uh, we asked this question about which party you think is more out of touch. Um, and the Conservatives were up eight on that. And that's obviously bad if more people are seeing you as out of touch. But interestingly, the real shift was with Labour, where t people were 20 per 20 percent less. Were say, uh, fewer people were saying that Labour was an out-of-touch party, 
So it really is suggesting that, you know, just by uh, Keir Starmer coming on and, you know, perhaps the position he's take, positions he's taken over the last couple of months, um, that, that Labour brand is already recovering, um, which is obviously... Uh, now, they've got a lot of gap to close. Boris Johnson still comes out top on best PM and best leader questions, um, even if more narrowly than before. But, you know, they've got a big gap to close. Um, on sorry, the... sorry. Uh, just before we go on, when, when was the, um, the previous data point? So you said it was a 20-point change in out of touch, but between when and when? Yeah, so it was in January. It was in January of this year. So in January of this year, it was 25% said the Conservatives were the most out of touch. And 37% said Labour. Um, now that's quite a, that was a very very poor poll finding for Labour because you know these the, traditionally the Conservatives are seen as the more out of touch party. What we now see is that's 33% Conservative up eight and 17% uh, Labour down 20. So only in you know in five months that picture has almost completely reversed. Now that's an incredible finding. Sorry, please go on. Yeah, just on the on the wider point, I think I think we are I think we de- I think we definitely have seen a. A more united country in terms of um, of sort of you know social views and and you know views of the NHS and a sense of coming together. I think certainly um, uh, you know that feeling of um, you know coming together that we see uh, you know every Thursday evening at eight o'clock. You know, very well um, uh, sort of uh, a very clear demonstration of public support. And you know, in some in some of the polls I've seen. Um, you, know, you also see people referring to that, you know, um, I think you know, the ONS did some work on this, you know, showing that people do feel closer to their neighbours, people do feel uh, like they have a stronger community spirit. The key thing, as with all of these things, is whether that, that impact on society lasts um, and, uh, uh, you know, whether the reversion to normal, um, uh, if and when that should ever come. Uh, um, will dispel those things or keep it. But I think certainly, you know, we can say that politics aside, um, it is looking like a, a more united country than, than the one that came into this crisis. I think that seems a very good segue into talking about um, something which seems quite a long way off at the moment, which is how on earth we're going to pay for all of this. So there are going to be um, measures necessary, whether that is a sort of rhetorical rhetorical we're all in this together as per the previous administration or but one under Cameron but also given their approach of let's call it austerity um so do either of you have any insights into how the public feel that we would pay for this and what they might support or oppose at this early stage yeah, I was just uh, so this is this is a key question for number ten. Not quite yet, but after this is all over, and they will be looking very closely um, at the polling, particularly um, of those target voters that they won in the north and the Midlands uh, from Labour um, in December 2019. And what's uh, really interesting about, about about this group is that you know they 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 doubted very significantly. Um, whether the Conservatives really would put more money into the NHS, really would put more money into schools. So they are going to be extremely sensitive, um, these voters, to the idea of, of austerity or public spending cuts. Now, my view is, I think that, you know, even in the worst economic situation, that is going to make uh, uh, spending cuts, um, effectively rule spending cuts out, I think, for the Conservative Party. And then it really does come down to tax rises. And I think there again, there is a bit more room um, uh, for manoeuvre but one thing we see over and over again and you know we had this problem in Downing Street when I was there when we thought for a while 
that we might have to raise tax to pay for the NHS funding boost that came in in, um, in, in mid-2018. In mid and you know, the thing you find is that the taxes that look the most appealing to, to, to lift actually don't bring in that much money. Um, so therefore, it tends to come back to general taxation. Now, that is obviously, that doesn't sound like a vote winner, but my reading has always been that actually there probably is support in the country for a general tax rise if it's framed in the right way. Now, obviously, that that cannot be anytime soon. Um, you know, people, we're going to have unemployment soon. We're going to have issues uh, with people, you know, being able to afford things day to day, let alone a tax, a tax rise. But I'm talking more about in the medium to long term. I think that, you know, I think people do appreciate that there's going to be a lot of debt after this. I think people do understand that, you know, this this money is going to have to be paid off. And I think that, you know, if it's framed as, you know, this money going into the NHS or this money, you know, coming together to, to pay off the debt, I can see that 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 having the potential um, to land as a, as a policy. But uh, as I say, that's a long way off. And the, the, the top consideration, if any of this fiscal policy actually won't really be um, the money it brings in, it will more be what are the voters going to think, especially if that comes in close to 2024. Well, thanks, James. It's something that we talked about previously with John Denham, about whether the, um, the experience of COVID can be a sort of unifying experience that leads people to be more willing to pay into something, having already demonstrated, seen it sort of demonstrated to them the benefit that not just individuals but the community the country more broadly sort of get out of that um, so let's move on as uh, the prime minister would very much like us not to to dominic cummings so james do people care about the dominic cummings affair and um is it time to move on well i think one of the reasons we're probably seeing that move online uh, used so much by number 10 is that I expect that in their in their research they're finding that's one of the, the things people people most want I think as with all of these stories you know you do see uh, once they run for days and days people getting more and more frustrated by them um, of course there's a question as to whether the best way to move on from this is for people to stop talking about it or for um, the person in question to resign but um, I think certainly uh, polling we've seen so far suggests that people do care about it as an issue. And um, we've seen a poll by YouGov um, published uh, published today on, on, on Thursday, uh, saying that, um, you know, showing that more than 60% of people view it as an important story. Um, in my polling uh, through JL Partners earlier in the week, we found that 87% um, of people had heard a great deal or a fair amount about the story. I mean, that is vast cut through. Um, you know, often with many government announcements, you know, that the government was proactively trying to push, you would find it very hard to get above above 50% on some of those measures. You know, even for government budgets, you would find it hard to nudge above 60 or 65%. So very high levels of cut through. Um, and I think what we see by the number of MPs who are who are frustrated, I think what we see by, you know, the fact actually that, that Dominic Cummings even felt he had to go out and do that, do that press conference on, that press statement on, on Monday really shows that you know clearly you know there is a lot of public anger about this and I think the real concern about this and, and it looks you know like this is going to be something that stays with the Conservatives for, for rather a while now the real risk of this is, is, is that is that sense of fairness and I think this is a really important point because those voters who I talked about earlier in the North in the Midlands in those Labour seats 
they tend to be what we call in polling terms C1, C2 voters. So they're more uh, they're sort of working class voters in in sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, more working class occupations in the sort of and they tend to be in those sort of seats I was talking about. Now those voters, when you do focus groups with them, as I've done there, probably too many too many to count. Lots of windowless uh, uh, holiday in conference rooms uh, with these with these guys. Um, you definitely get a sense that you know fairness and a feeling that they work really hard day in day out. Um, you know, they seem to play by the rules, um, but other people seem to get the rewards. And they talk about uh, when they when they're talking about that. You know, the examples they use, um, rightly or wrongly, they talk about uh, benefit claimants who are you know claiming benefits when they shouldn't. They talk about low skilled immigration um, to the country, and they talk about the rich and big businesses not paying tax. And I think the real danger, the real political danger for the conservatives of this story is that it feeds into that sense of unfairness. You know, someone's been able to go and do this and, you know, what the people perceive as, you know, breaching the rules, what the police perceive as probably breaching the rules. Um, but they have, well, they have been playing with the rules. Now, that as a political um, uh, brand moment for the Conservatives, if it sticks, um, is potentially very dangerous indeed. No, thanks, James. And I just wanted to actually um, flag up some of your own um, research here that um so overall picture should cummings resign or not 66 percent overall but 55 percent of conservatives said that uh he should resign but and the, the key thing i think here that really um jumped out at me was in answer to Boris Johnson's government acts as though it's one rule for them and another for everyone else. 70% agreed and 48% of Conservative voters, which I think absolutely to some of the things that you, you talked about, about fairness there, um, it could be something potentially that sticks and must be an enormous um, risk to the government but yeah i'll just put come just, just very quickly on that martin i think that's i think that's right i would just make that caveat though that um you know it's 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 going to be the big question now whether this is sustained and you know is this is this a thing that you know does stick in people's heads or doesn't it and that is that that is the question we genuinely don't know the answer to and i say that because when i was uh, running the polling um at number 10 we had basically a very static picture of voting intention all through the time we were there, I think you'll probably remember up until you know the European elections. When up until then, it was pretty much 40-40 in the polls throughout most of late 2017 and all of 2018, and up till March in 2019 as well. Now there was one exception to that, which was after the Chequers um, uh, agreement was 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 uh, was made um, in July uh, 2018, and that was when we had a big dip in those voting intention polls. And I think the same was seen in the public polling as well. I think certainly. The YouGov uh, tracker showed that. Now, the really interesting thing there was is that the support went to don't know. And what happened by August? It snapped back up again and then it was back at 40-40 again. So it's a really big question of whether this is going to be like that, a short-term hit, or whether this is going to be something that sticks with them. Because certainly nobody remembers checkers now, and actually not even many people remember checkers uh, by 2019. It, you know, Instead, the argument was over um, whether we'd left um, at all. So uh, that is a key point, I think. You know, we just don't know at this stage whether this is a short-term hit or something more structural. No, absolutely. I think the the sort of the question will be whether it 
leads to an enduring brand weakness, sort of similar to post ERM Black Wednesday for the Conservatives. But Steve, given that the Labour Party now seems to be sort of back in the game, which means that at least uh, those people, if they don't feel satisfied with the Conservatives, um, might potentially look to turn to the Labour Party. But what about partisanship and polarisation? Because we've seen an awful lot of um, people on the left and Remainers attacking Dominic Cummings, wanting him to go, all of these sort of things that you might expect. So how active is sort of partisan polarisation in our politics at the moment? Um, well, on the Dominic Cummings case, I think as you just described, actually, it seems that um, both Conservative supporters and Labour supporters and the rest are all pretty critical of him and perhaps not divided on party lines like we see on some other issues and particularly we see if we look over the pond to America. Um, but I think maybe something you put your finger on and one thing that has actually shocked me a little bit but really shouldn't have shocked me is the kind of strength of feeling when you uh, hear the voice of some people and this is um, that's a clue that I spend more time on Twitter than I should do. The kind of strength of feeling around this story and I think while the Yes, some of that is the sense of fairness in a moment of profound national um, uh, crisis. Uh, I'm not sure it's only explained by that, or I'm not sure intuitively it is. Um, and some of it, I think, it comes back down to kind of the, the few years we've been through, perhaps, around Brexit and the kind of um, iconic figure, figure coming to become around Brexit. Um, and we've spoken on the podcast before about how some of these divides have been quite emotional in nature and how we don't like each other uh, as much as perhaps um, we used to, or we dislike them more. Um, so I think maybe it's not partisanship, but I think there's a strength of feeling um, that speaks to some of the identity politics that have been bubbling away for a few years. Okay, well, is politics back then? I mean, can we sort of take a step back now and how, think about how this is affecting politics more widely? I mean, for example, we've had the um, NHS levy change charge changed so is that a great victory for starmer and is this a sign that politics is getting back to normal my, my take was that probably there was a point at which politics came back it was round about the point that Keir Starmer became leader partly because it's hard to have a a sort of proper ding-dong debate without a leader of the Labour Party but I think that also coincided with the point at which people's attention perhaps wasn't a hundred percent focused on on just uh, not the pandemic, but the, the the need to lock down, the sort of fear of it. I think at that point, we started to have debates about PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, um, testing and the like. So I think perhaps at that point, it came um, back. Uh, on the levy, I think it's a really interesting example, partly thinking back on the Cummings case, because I've never come across um, an example where, uh, as, as what happened, is Boris Johnson went to PMQ, Starmer challenged him about this, this issue of um, care workers from abroad being charged to use the NHS. Uh, he, he rebutted that uh, and then it seemed within hours that they'd done a U-turn. I'm sure there's examples of that kind of thing, but I can't think of one that quickly. Um, but actually, no one's really talking about that now. It seems to have knocked it on the head. Whereas in the case of the sort of Dominic Cummings travel scandal, they've allowed it to run, they've not budged and it's become a massive story. Yeah, I think certainly as per the blog we posted just the other day, the, the issue with the Cummings is 
around Cummings is regardless of the sort of rights and wrongs or views of the issue, it has been a absolute fiasco from a comms point of view. But James, do you have a view on how polarised the UK is compared to other countries? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, it's one of those ones where, um, you know, we need to, this is a classic pollster uh, response, but you know, in a way we need to sort of see some of the fallout still from this uh, calming saga to really see how much that's changed things. But with that, with that caveat, I mean, certainly, you know, as I say, there is now, um, uh, and, and I, I would say, I think, you know, although those arguments about PPE and care homes were very much in the public domain, it feels like the public only really uh, sort of started paying attention to those things once they're sort of um, after that May 10th speech by Boris Johnson, when the sort of uh, wheels seemed to come off in terms of the comms effort, and people started to the people sort of use that as a, a, a as a sort of um, uh, not an excuse, but as a signal to be able to then say, well, actually, look, they're also not doing other things that well either. And then those issues became more into the into the foreground. And I'm sure they will continue to be so. But it's interesting when you look at other countries. I mean, um, certainly, uh, you know, when you look at um, whether Labour voters or Conservative voters, you know, think about the government, we do seem to be uh, uh, moving towards not being that far off from some other countries now. I mean, certainly, you know, we're more polarised uh, on that than um, uh, than than people are in in France, for example, or or in or in Germany. Um, where you know there is there is big distinction on between the between the main parties, but we're broadly um, we're broadly in line, or or in Germany's case, a little bit ahead of it. The interesting thing is though is that at the moment the UK polarisation isn't feeding through to sort of bigger picture stuff, sort of like views of the um, World Health Organization, for example, or views of lockdown measures. So if you look at the United States, uh, you know which is the sort of um, uh, the you know the absolute um, you know pinnacle of political polarization. Um, we see actually whether your view on the lockdown rules, or whether your view of um, public health officials, or whether your view on the World Health Organization is dictated by whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. And we see that to a lesser extent in other European countries as well. So in Sweden, for example, um, the popular Sweden Democrat uh, Party, which you know pulls in about you know fifteen to twenty percent of the vote. Um, uh, if you're a supporter of them, you're much less likely um, to be uh, supportive of public health, uh, the public health agency of Sweden, for example, and the equivalent of public health England uh, in that country. And if you're in Germany, if you're a member, uh, if you're a voter um, of uh, the AFD, uh, their populist party, um, then you are, um, well, it's probably a bit worse than populist, actually, um, then you are um, much less likely to be uh, supportive of public health measures than you would be if you're a Christian Democrat or or um, or or a social um, a, a social Democrat. So it's, it's interesting. I think yes, division in the UK on party lines and views of government and in views of Boris Johnson, but actually, and I suppose thankfully, you know, we aren't seeing that feed into those wider sort of health issues in the way that they are in the US and some other countries. Is that James? Is that um, do you think because? The divides we had seemed to be around Brexit identity and um, and sort of the more identity politics type issues. Whereas I think, if I understood it right, there was quite a lot of agreement about things like the value of the NHS and perhaps a slight left move on the economy. Do you think that's because the lockdown hasn't kind of exposed the divides we have, or do you think it's something else? Yeah, really interesting point. I mean, I'm I'm in the camp. Uh, it's quite an unpopular camp to be in, um, but. 
I'm in the camp that actually, you know, even the Brexit polarization was vastly um, exaggerated in in the press and social media. I mean, actually, even at the peak of those um, Brexit battles, you know, whether it was in late uh, 2019 under Boris Johnson or, you know, during the negotiations under Theresa May, when you actually went and did focus groups, you actually went and sat and talked with normal voters. Yes, they would have different views on Brexit, but actually, you know, the, the general sense was not, um, you know, a battle, a, a culture war battle. It was just a sense of sort of exhaustion by the whole thing. And the reason the Conservatives were so successful in December was because they actually managed to weaponize that exhaustion. You know, they, they didn't fight a Brexit culture war. They fighted a Brexit boredom war um, by just appealing to that common sense of frustration, which transcended leave and remain lines. So I think, you know, there is a, there is a sense where across the board, you know, for a while, um, actually, the polarisation uh, in, in academic terms, people refer to it as elite polarisation, you know, the polarisation in parliaments, amongst MPs, amongst influencers, amongst journalists, um, doesn't feed down uh, to the public level to quite that degree in the UK. But I think, there, I think there, are a couple, there are a couple of specific examples as well. I mean, I think a lot of it, again, comes back to the support for lockdowns. So in other countries, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the US is its own special case. As I say, it's sort of so far gone in terms of polarisation. But, you know, there, you know, there has always been this genuine debate over whether, um, whether you should, you know, whether you should lock down or not. And um, whereas in the UK, we've always been pretty united on that. And, and I do think that um, that, that feeds into the, a view that we have where we, the UK is quite exceptional in that we are the country that is most adamant about saving lives over protecting the economy. So this is, you know, a global survey that I did with, with, with Keck CNC, you know, showed that the British public were the most um, uh, sort of uh, the most sort of um, uh, adamant that the government focused on bringing down uh, the, the infection rate and the death rate, even if that meant, and this was the, this was the answer, how it's framed in the question, it, even if that meant um, uh, uh, a depression, uh, recession and, you know, the loss of many jobs and closure of many businesses. And, you know, people, I think it was 70, you know, 3% of, of Brits chose that option. Whereas in Germany and Sweden, um, that was much, much lower, um, or, you know, or, you know, below 50%. So there is a sense in the UK that, you know, the fear of the virus in the UK seems so much greater um, that I expect that is feeding a bit of that unity as well. People don't really see how politics comes into it. You know, they just sort of see this quite, you know, scary, worrying virus and think, well, okay, it's quite sensible to listen to the advice in terms of how to get rid of it then. That's fascinating. Honestly, that is hopeful on one hand that we're not as polarised as is often um, sort of said to be the case, but actually, and certain people in politics, not even certain people, it's often said in politics that the public want to have their cake and eat it. They want to um, higher tax, sorry, lower taxes and higher spending and that they're not sort of mature enough to be able to accept the compromises and trade-offs necessary. But you're saying that actually when asked they are willing to say that they accept the trade-off and are willing to pay the price of one outcome in terms of damage to another which is a perfect way for us to segue into discussing the centre ground. Now, it's been a while since we talked about the plight of centrists on this podcast, in part because it has slightly gone away. As you say, James, politics has been a bit sort of on hold on some of these issues. So one particular interesting question for us is whether um, sort of opinion polls and opinion generally now shifts 
towards or away from the centre. So do you have any views around that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think I will probably add to the plight of the centrists with this, with this answer, which is, you know, I think that um, although at the very start of this crisis, you know, there was a lot written, there was a lot said about, you know, how we were going to move towards a more internationalist response. And actually this showed, um, you know, the, the benefits of working together and it showed, you know, in relation to um, the NHS, for example, you know, the value of, of immigration and, and other aspects. I think that actually, you know, we are seeing um, uh, in a lot of countries, um, uh, we are seeing a, um, a move actually towards sort of people looking more inwardly um, in regards to trade, um, in regards to um, uh, sort of, you know, uh, national sort of protection, um, particularly in, in terms of views of China. Um, and I think, you know, as a result, that tends to uh, fuel, um, you know, movements away away from the centre ground. It tends to sort of, you know, fuel uh, that sense of um, uh, uh, not quite populism, but um, uh, that sense of sort of, you know, uh, things like, you know, defending our, our, our security and, you know, um, bunkering down and, you know, reducing immigration and so on. And, and those sort of arguments, which I think probably lend lend more to the lend, lend more to the right and as a result you know the left rather than uh, trying to sort of um triangulate triangulate often instead comes down on the sort of the diametrically opposite uh, answer um so and you know just one example you know jail partners we did some polling quite close to the start of the pandemic now in, in early april you know we did some polling and it showed that on balance you know most people said that they're uh, their, their view, well, most people said that their view of immigration had not changed um, because of the crisis. And those that did, there was actually a small margin, very small, but still, still significant. Um, a margin of 8% actually said their views had deteriorated rather than got better. And I think, you know, there is a bit, and although, you know, there are certainly views like, um, uh, although certainly, you know, on the NHS levy and on, uh, and on, um, on, on sort of you know, immigration surcharge, people had very different views. On immigration as a whole, um, uh, you know, when you talk in focus groups about immigration at the moment, people aren't really talking about the NHS uh, uh, levy or, or, or surcharges. They're, they're, they're talking in exasperated fashion about why the borders aren't closed yet. And I think we see that in the US as well. So uh, that to me, you know, makes it feel like uh, um, the centre is still, is still some way off. But look, maybe there are some grounds for optimism. I mean, certainly the Labour Party is, is in a more centrist place than it was Two months ago um, and uh, as with all of these things you know it's political leaders who can who can who can change opinion um, as well as follow it but at the moment I would say I think things are moving more away than towards the centre. Okay well uh, that somewhat undoes the optimism of, uh, of earlier on but we've got about five minutes left so Steve although uh, James thinks we're moving away from the centre and where do you think that centre ground might be at the moment so it seems like for example the um the centre ground on the economy is maybe becoming more interventionist more sort of state intervention and tax and spend but other than that or that as well where do you think the sort of centre ground is at the moment and whether is there an appetite out there for doing things much different so i think um uh, you're both right and james is right to point out that um there isn't really a centre ground as it used to be, a sort of economically liberal, somewhat socially progressive centre ground. Uh, I think we've sort of discovered that over the last few months and, uh, and years. Um, yeah, most, I think 
all the major parties I can think of are somewhat left on the economy now that the Conservative Party has become somewhat more statist. Um, the issues or the sort of span of issues that where you could take a sort of find a centre ground, I think is more on the identity politics stuff, sometimes called the liberal authoritarian sort of axis. I don't think anyone has really carved out a narrative or a position that, that can achieve that. Um, so perhaps the best thing to focus on is actually how people are doing politics. And are you, and by that, I mean, are you, as a political leader, reaching out to a broad, broad church, being kind of conciliatory, um, rather than what we've seen a bit of in the last few years, which is the populist angle, or the kind of feeding on the anger created by politics. So I'm now starting to, when I think about, um, is a politician being uh, moving to the centre, I'm starting to think about more of that discourse thing rather than what we used to think of the kind of centrist consensus. Yeah, and just to jump in on that, Steve, I think that's I think that's totally right. And I think the other thing is, you know, if you do define the centre ground as being, um, you know, where uh, you know where the views of a lot of voters are, um, and you know, therefore, you know, sort of tackling their concerns um, up front uh, rather than you know letting you know fringe parties come on, then you know there is an argument, uh, maybe not the most. Uh, maybe not the most popular on Twitter, but there is an argument to say that, you know, the Conservatives completely claim that ground in December because, you know, they were able to actually take a uh, more left-wing uh, economic approach with higher spending pledges, um, but also a slightly more small-c Conservative um, approach when it came to um, uh, social issues um, and sort of social change. And I think that, you know, it was very... And, you know, they did manage to bring, um, you know, a relatively... Uh, broad um, coalition. I think you know it was the younger, you know, the youngest average age um, of the Conservative vote um, for a very long time. And you know they did pick up, uh, you know, plenty of middle class people in the south, as well as lots of working class uh, people in the north and the midlands. So you know it all depends on the definition of centre ground. But I think I would just say that just because although you know the Conservative popularity this week is not is not sky high, and as I say, you know those those um, opinion polls sh do show a shift of the brand. I think we have to recognise. You know, in the UK, um, we are one of the reasons perhaps we're not as polarised as, as some of those other countries. It's because we don't have a, a, a we don't have a Brexit party anymore. We don't have a Sweden Democrats. We don't have an AFD. We don't have this populist party which could be out there right now. You know, with fifteen or twenty percent of the vote, you know, marching up and down the country saying disobey lockdown rules. You know, we just don't have that because um, the Conservative Party in December was so effectively able. Um, to win that, to win that election, and to bring people on side, including those perhaps who may have been tempted towards that party, and actually offered a much more liberal um, uh, uh, offering um, relative to perhaps that would that would have been on offer with those more populist parties. So, by no means am I saying um, uh, that uh, you know the centre ground is back. I'm not saying that at all. But it is just worth noting that you know our politics is less extreme. Um, than some of these other countries, probably just because of that of that ability to have done that in December by the Conservatives. No, I think that's a very good point. And we sort of touched on whether uh, Labour has sort of changed. It does seem to have become more sort of centrist in that it seems to be more methodical than populist now. But James, I'm aware that you've got to go. So I just want to leave you very briefly on the uh, the tiny question of, of Brexit. If you could cover that in about a minute or so, that would be grand. But on a specific question, do you have any insight into how the public might feel about the government requesting an extension in the specific circumstances of the pandemic? 
Well, I think the public are um, are very open to that, and we've seen you know many opinion polls showing um, support for that because of the circumstances of the pandemic, including amongst amongst Leave voters. Um, I think the issue is, of course, is um, is that number ten you know don't have been pretty adamant they're not going to do that um, uh, because you know for various reasons they 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 think um, it's better to go. It's better to go this year. I think this is going to become a very big question, and I think it's actually going to be quite a political risk. I mean, look, if it comes off, let's not for us not forget. You know, Boris Johnson has defied the odds before. Um, you know, he went and got that deal uh, in October, um, and uh, you know, sort of showed uh, showed everybody up who said he was never going to get one. Um, and um, you know, so he may be able to do it again. But I think you know the risk that if we do end up you know as as a way of extracting that deal if we do end up with a sort of existential you know uk versus eu battle um uh right in the middle of a pandemic i'm not sure voters are, are going to reward that actually i think they're going to look at that and think um you know well, what, firstly why are we talking about brexit again and secondly why are we talking about it now and i think you know number 10's original negotiating plan at the start of this year was very much to have that fight you know, to have that sort of, you know, complete, very open public bust up uh, with the EU. Now, in January, I think quite a lot of the, their new voters in, in who they won in December would, would be quite up for that. I'm not sure that is the case now. And I think, you know, the fact that that Brexit um, effect has sort of, you know, gone off so much, um, and indeed, like I said earlier, maybe wasn't there so much in the first place, you know, does suggest that that is going to, think, I think a lot of people, you know, will look at that and say, well, hang on, why, why are we talking about this when we should be focusing on that? And I think on Labour, you know, their best attack line on that will be to say exactly that. Why are we focusing on this now? I think if Labour falls into the trap of looking like a Remain party um, once more, um, then the Conservatives will see that as a gift. But having this existential face-off in the middle of a pandemic, particularly after this week, you know, where those divides, you know, where, the, where that concern, you know, about the, about the Conservatives has sort of really come to the fore, I find it's going to be quite difficult for voters to swallow. And just just while we're on the topic, um, I observed uh, last week that the Lib Dems have actually put down a bill uh, with a two-year, suggesting a two-year extension to Brexit. And I think that might be the first toe in the water of how far they want to go towards a kind of party of rejoin or something else similar to that angle. And also, it seems a very clear attempt to find out what Labour are going to do on this. Uh, and whether they are going to be particularly soft Brexit or remain, or whether they're going to go along with it or not. And um, I think we might get a clue for how some of these debates will play out when finally the pandemic isn't the only thing on our minds. Yes, absolutely. It seems very odd to be able to say, come back Brexit, all is forgiven. But that does seem to be this, almost the situation that we are now. But it's absolutely, sort of log makes a lot of sense that a government which, promised to get Brexit done, then sort of championed haven't got Brexit done, then revives it in order to play politics with it in the middle of a pandemic. You can certainly see how that might um, sort of potentially damage them. But James, this has been absolutely fantastic. To, um, to have your insights on this is, uh, has been brilliant. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. So James, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Pleasure. Steve, thank you very much. Thank you. And to everyone out there, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. This has been the No Man's Land podcast.
podcast and uh, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.